If you have your Bibles, I, I ask you to open them up. If you don't, uh, uh, the scripture's printed in your bulletin also. First Kings, and we're going to look at chapter uh, 16, a very familiar passage, and, and we're going to talk today about some of the threats uh, to community. So let's read this uh, passage first, uh, starting at verse uh, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which they had made. And that he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made in Asherah, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so some years ago, and it's been a while, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I got a magazine uh, at the church that I had subscribed to, a Christian magazine, really a good one if I mentioned a name, uh, most of you would know it. And on the front cover of the magazine was a woman a uh, young, youngish woman, maybe in her 30s, something like that, dressed in a very slick uh, business suit. You could tell that she was an executive of some kind in, in business. And she was sitting uh, in the middle of the page in the lotus position with her legs crossed and her hands connected so that the electrical energy would be passing through all of her. And in the middle on her lap was... Uh, a laptop computer, and over to the side was a Bible, and over to this side was her cell phone, and swirling around in the, in the air above her were these um, uh, images of all of the world religions, Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, all the, the yin and the yang symbols and things like that. And what the book said or what the title of the article was, is this is postmodern Christianity, where Christians have lost a sense of the oneness and the centeredness of their faith and are now borrowing from Eastern religion, from other religions uh, in different parts of the world, New Ageism, and just kind of combining it all, whatever works for you and putting it all into uh, one package. Now, you know, uh, if, it's not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but what happens is that 
a problem for us that threatens the community of the church called syncretism. That's where we're reaching out and borrowing from all kinds of thoughts, ideas, culture, borrowing them and trying to fit them in and make them a part of our religion. And it's not that we're just borrowing them because, hey, they might be helpful, you know, meditating may be helpful. But transcendental meditation is emptying your mind. Christian meditation is filling your mind with the Word of God. And there's a huge difference blanking out your mind so that you can just sort of not be troubled by the thoughts of this world or bringing to bear all that God has said on the troubles of this world. And this problem of syncretism is what destroyed the human race in the Garden of Eden It continued throughout the history of the Old Testament and comes to something of an apex, a nadir, if you want to call it that, the high point, under this king Ahab, who was extraordinarily wicked and at the same time very conflicted about his faith. There were times when he repented and wanted God to bless him and and, uh, God sent Elijah and Elisha the prophet to try to help him and, and also to judge him. Really an amazing story. In the 38th year, look at verse 29 and 30. Asa, king of Judah, who was the king in the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned in Samaria 22 years. His reign was one of the most successful and prosperous reigns of any king of either Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel. But Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. These kings of Israel and Judah were supposed to act like thermostats for the nation, for the people. They represented the people to God. They were supposed to protect the nation against syncretism, which I'll explain in a moment. They were supposed to protect the nation against foreign enemies, against the Philistines, against the, uh, uh, the Hittites and Canaanites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They were supposed to be a warrior for God to keep out these things and protect the sheep. And instead, Ahab in the northern kingdom and even some of the kings in the southern kingdom began to bring in these, the worship of other gods. And understand this. They were not saying, let's exchange Yahweh, let's exchange Jehovah, let's exchange the Lord that Moses taught us about for Baal or Molech or Chemosh or whoever. Let's exchange them. No, 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 that was never the case. What they did was just bring them in so that they would have a pantheon. Oh yes, we're going to worship God But we also see the value in worshiping Baal and Asherah because they're fertility gods. They'll help our crops come in. And let's worship this one and that one for whatever reasons. And they just thought it was okay to bring these things in. And that is syncretism. The message in the book of Kings is a message that's as relevant today as it was then. Avoid syncretism. Don't let it creep into the church, into the people of God. Watch out for it, because what syncretism does is lead you to idolatry. 
And idolatry, of course, is the sin of the Bible. Almost the entire Old Testament was written to address the sin of idolatry. Now, we're very tempted in the 21st century to say, oh, I I don't worship idols, I don't have anything in my life that's an idol, but you'll see as we go through this that you do, and I do, we all do. So we're to avoid syncretism, we're to avoid idolatry and sin. We're supposed to live in faith, trusting God, the God that is revealed in Scripture. And the message of kings was that look at all these kings that are failing. We should be looking for the true king that will follow and walk in the footsteps of his father, David, and be absolutely true uh, to God. So let's talk about three things quickly. Syncretism, what is it? Sin, taking it lightly. And finally, sacrifice, what it costs to rebuild uh, Jericho. So syncretism, what is it? We'll look at 31 through 33, this little section, where it says that he took Jezebel, this princess from Sidon, he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, that was her dad, Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal. He erected Baal a house in Samaria and worshipped him and made an Asherah. An Asherah was a figure of a tree. It represented a connection between heaven and earth and fertility for the land. It was a female goddess, Asherah, and Baal and Asherah would, would uh, have sex and they would produce you know, crops and uh, all of this mystical ancient Near East religion. And believe me, it is absolutely fascinating. Every tribe, every group, almost every community had a Baal god or an Asherah god and any number of other gods. And the headquarters for all Baal worship in the ancient Near East was Sidon. And so Ahab goes and gets the princess of Sidon, who was a devotee of Asherah, And he marries her. Now they didn't do away with worshiping God, Yahweh. They just added these gods to it. And that's what syncretism is. It's a mixture, not an exchange. It's like in the Garden of Eden. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, or to Eve, and he says, uh, look at that tree. Did God say you shouldn't eat from that tree? And she answers him, and he said, oh, get... That tree will make you wise. It'll make you like God. And so what she did was she became synchronistic. She took the fruit and said, well, what what harm can that be? To be like God, that's got to be a good thing, right? Don't you all want to be like God? I do. I want to imitate him and be like him. So she takes the fruit. And at that moment, syncretism entered into the human race. Mixing of beliefs, not an exchange. So your loyalties and your allegiances shift. Now we have a a name for our church, Christ the King. Christos, Christ, King, Kurios. Kurios Christos was the, 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 the battle cry of the early church. Christ is Lord. He is King. Over against all of the... That means that your allegiance, your loyalty, your devotion to Him 
is not first place because that would imply that there could be a second place. And in the theology of Scripture, there's no God first and family second and church third. There's no hierarchy. God is all in all. He's not first, He's second, He's third, He's fourth, He's one millionth, He's everything. And all of those other things are to be orbiting around that central figure of Almighty God. And if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Christ the King, everything in your life, it doesn't matter what it is, is to center around that. And when anything else gets brought into our life, not even as a competition for God, but just another thing that is supposed to augment or help you get to your goal is considered synchronicity, synchronistic and idolatrous. In the church, and let me say this uh, with all the care and love I can for the sheep, It's not a question of if you are synchronistic. It is only a question of where. You have to be able to look and see. And this is why, by the way, God sends in chapter 17 the prophet Elijah to to get up in Ahab and Jezebel's face and point out their synchronicity and their idolatry and challenge them. And that's the great story of kings is of Elisha and then his prodigy coming along and just absolutely bringing horrific judgment against the people of the northern ten tribes of Israel. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Now I have all my years here at Christ the King, I've been pointing out the the problems that the church in America has with things like political power. And if you don't believe it's a problem, you're just not paying attention. The American evangelical church has absolutely sold its soul to politics. And I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian, it makes no difference. We are looking to political power, to be the means to an end. If we will get in bed with these people, they will help us get rid of abortion or get better Supreme Court justices. And that's all true. The problem is that it creeps in subtly. But you, you don't even know it's happening. And the dependence upon that begins to encroach on our dependence and our allegiance to God. And I know because I have made so many people in our church not just mad, I mean blistering mad, whenever I mention politics. And so I'm going to do it again. Sorry. And money. So power, political power, money. The, the, one of the most powerful False gospels on the earth, not just the United States, is the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel. That if you're a Christian, you should have lots of money and you should live in perfect health. And suffering is from the devil. And so we should throw that out. We should always be blessed. Always get what we want. Always be happy. Happiness is the goal. And that syncretistic idea has crept into the church where... 
People in other parts of the world can't even recognize American Christianity. They look at us and they go, what are you all whining about over there in America? Oh, well, we don't, you know, our church just doesn't have the best coffee machine. How can that be? This idea has captured us, and it is continuing to capture us. Money, power, status. If any of you have been listening to uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the sad story of uh, Mark Driscoll, Mark Driscoll had people like Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, John Piper mentoring him. And at one point they said, Mark, you've got to stop all this crazy stuff you're doing, and you need to listen to these older men. And you know what his answer was? Why should I listen to them? My church is bigger than them. My church is more successful than... And it was. He was three times as big as Bethel in Minneapolis or, uh, or Keller Redeemer in New York. But that's a synchronistic idea. Wealth, power, success, status, influence. And in America individualism. I can do what I want. Look at the... I can't tell you how many churches in our little presbytery have been torn apart by masks, no masks. Vax, don't vax. Now you answer the question, why would you tear the body of Christ apart for any of those? Why? doesn't matter which side you come down on. You see, it's what you do with that. Those things become so important. They get pushed up. Y'all, how many of you know what the cone of certainty is? Let's see if anybody remembers from theology. The cone of certainty. You take these things, whether it's money or power, politics, status, influence, masks, no masks, vax, no vax, you take them and you start pushing them, cramming them up into the cone of certainty where there's not a whole lot of room up there. In fact, up at the top of the cone of certainty should be nothing more than Jesus Christ the Lord. He's up there. Not that these things are not important. Not that you don't have freedom to choose. You do. Nobody's saying that. But when you will leave your church because of it, or not come to church because of it, or be angry at your pastor because he warns you about the politicians out there that will subvert your faith and overpromise and underperform. When, you, when that takes a hold, we are dealing with something that is deadly. We're dealing with syncretism. And our personal preferences become so high in our thinking, so up to the top in our thinking, that we will do violence to the body of Christ. Now tomorrow, Dawson and I are leaving for Presbytery in Santa Fe. And I won't tell you all the, all the issues that are before us, but we've already seen in our little Presbytery of 10, 12, 13 churches, we've had one leave recently over this stuff, church torn apart. I had a very good friend of mine who planted a church 21 years ago, one of the best pastors and exegetical preachers that I have ever known. He was a seminary friend. His church was so divided over politics and masks and vaccinations and all of this stuff that is just swirling around in our American culture today got so heated this past year that the church split 
three ways, finally collapsed, entirely collapsed, and he had built a beautiful church, wonderful community, completely collapsed. They had to sell their building. They're out. It's done. It's finished. And he and his wife now, after 20 years of, of church planting and slaving, they're starting over at zero. Now let me tell you folks, with all the love in my heart that I can, somebody is going to pay dearly for that in the judgment. I doubt anyone will want to say amen to that, but I would hope you would. Somebody's going to pay for that. Some angry, bitter person who claims to be a Christian is going to claim, is going to get, God is going to give them a spanking for that for destroying his church and his people. This is what synchronism, syncretism will do to a community. It will take things that may be important, maybe not that important, and push them up to a place where we will actually be at one another's throats. Because what happens is synchronicity leads us to sin. Now, sin... You all know what sin is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now there's more to sin than that, but that's how they codified it in the Shorter Catechism for children, to break God's law. Sin is breaking the first commandment. And Tim Keller has said, if you, you cannot break any of the other commandments until you first break the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you look in the lexicon, the Hebrew word before, the first meaning in a Hebrew lexicon for before is not in rank or order. It's not like number one or number two or number three. It's in my presence. That's the first. It can mean in rank or order, but the primary meaning is don't, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you won't have any other gods in my, in my sight, in my land, among my people, among my church, in my church. You have no other gods in front of me or before me. Push them out there, outside the community of God's people, because if these things are in the community, they will destroy us. Look at verse 30. Ahab said, Oh, as if it was a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took Jezebel. What was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Jeroboam was the a uh, guy who created a, a rebellion against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. David and Solomon had brought the whole kingdom of God together in Jerusalem and all the 12 tribes lived together and were worshiping together in the temple. But there was all kinds of oppression and things that were going on, political stuff behind the scenes. And the pure worship of God was lost. Even Solomon started to compromise. He brought in, he had 700 concubines and 300 wives and his primary wife was the daughter of Pharaoh. Syncretism. The wisest man, look folks, if the wisest man who ever lived fell prey to syncretism, what do you think is happening to us? Do you think we're not going to have that problem or, the, or that we're going to be too smart 
to let it get us? No. It will get us. It's the sin beneath every other sin. Idolatry. Bringing something else into your life that gives your life meaning or value to the degree, let me, let me qualify it, to the degree that without that thing, you're not you anymore. In other words, if you, if, there's nothing wrong. I went to the symphony Friday night. It was beautiful. If, if, if music, here's how you know if music is your idol. If it was taken away, would you be okay? What about your career? If your career was taken away, would you still be okay? You might be, go hungry. You may not have a lot of stuff. What if you lose your spouse? Would you be shattered? Would you be distraught? Well, not everybody. But would you be okay? Yes, you'd be distraught. You'd be broken to pieces. Think of anything that you, if it was taken away, you would no longer be you. You would no longer be okay. You would doubt God. You would even think of leaving God because he owes me something. A man may be said to make a thing his God. Listen to this. These, uh, uh, Stephen Chir- Chernock in his, his The Attributes of God, this big book that's about 1,200 pages, amazing. Listen to this. A man may be said to make a thing his God when he acts as if something below God could make him happy without God or that God could not make him happy, listen, without the addition of something else. Thus the glutton makes a God of his dainties. The ambitious man of his honors, the incontinent or the undisciplined man of his lust the covetous man of his wealth, and consequently esteems them as his chiefest good and the most noble end to which he can direct his thoughts. Think about this. Chernock is nailing it. He's saying it's not just something that you replace God with. It's something that you need in order to be okay. If everything was stripped away, if your health was gone, if your children went off the rails, if, if the whole world collapsed, if the economy of the United States collapsed and, are no, and a Republican is never elected to another office the rest of this world, the rest of time, will you be okay? Man, it's quiet in here. All right, if another Democrat is never elected... <laughs> See, look, these things are personal. They get down into the inside. I'm not saying they don't matter. They matter. But who in the world is going to stand back from all of this world in its mess and not go hide in in a cave somewhere like like the ascetics did in the early centuries of the church, not hunker down and bunker down and pull the pull the dirt in over your head, but somebody that's going to stand up and speak to our community. Our world and our church's warning not to let these idols take their place in your heart. And 
This idea of idolatry, folks, is something that we all have to reckon with. Listen, this is Richard Keyes, another great scholar. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The apostle, he's talking about Paul, the apostle associates the dynamics of human greed, listen to this, human greed, lust, craving, coveting, with idolatry. They're not little statues. The Bible does not allow us, listen, to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is center stage. It's not whether or not if you have an idol, it is where they are. And so how do you identify these? Well, we launched our community groups and we we really want you all to be in community somewhere. Hopefully we've got five groups And if you're not in a community group, we urge you to join one. You can look at the, Dawson's got a really cool map back there that has all the places and the days and times. Because community is where you will find protection. If you get split away from the community, you will get devoured. Like you've seen all these predatory movies on uh, National Geographic where there's a herd of wild beasts or what have you. And, you know, they'll pull away a weak one and they'll kill that one, the, the lions or the hyenas or whoever. This is reality. And as a Christian, we need one another. You will not become a disciple of Jesus in church. It's impossible. You can come here and be blessed. You can get some good information. You can worship the Lord with spirit and truth. I mean, you can do all of those things. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to be in a small group of like 10 or 12 like uh, somebody else did. And live with those people and bounce things off and let those people into your life enough so that you can trust them and they trust you and we can root out these idols together because let me tell you, you'll have a hard time getting rid of them by yourself. They are not easy. And you'll wrestle with this stuff the rest of your life, folks. And if you're honest, you you can put your Christianity in overdrive. It can be so cool. You can become so enamored with the beauty and the joy of being a Christian and knowing Jesus Christ and seeing something actually happen in your life Whereas a lot of Christians just oh God's not doing anything, it's not doing well. How often do you go to church? Oh, once every six weeks. Are you in a community group? No, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to bother with that too much. I got, I'm too busy. Sounds like an idol to me. I'm too busy. Don't you see it? There it is, right there. It's as real as if you got down on your knees and burned incense to your busy. All right. I know this is hard. Here's, here's a, I've given you this before, but I thought it'd be a good time to, to, to share this with you again. Here's a diagnostic. These are diagnostic tools. It's actually from David Paulison's article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. If you want to read a powerful, powerful piece on modern idolatry in the church. This piece, you can find it on the internet, and if you can't, just email or text me and I'll send it to you. Here's the diagnostics you'll find. What makes you afraid? What keeps you up at night? 
What creates a desire in you to isolate yourself or to self-protect? What makes you angry? Jealous? Envious? Or insecure? At what or at whom do you express contempt, indifference? Listen, this is a real big one in our culture. Cynicism. Sarcasm. What do you find yourself being cynical about or sarcastic about? There's an idol there. What triggers depression, stress, dissatisfaction or discontentment? Who or what are you criticizing? Your spouse, your church, your family, your co-workers, your government? Who or what are you uh, uh, overemphasizing, underemphasizing, dismissing or ridiculing, making fun of? And how do you react? Listen to this. This is so hard. How do you react when expectations are not met, when you don't get your way, when somebody doesn't measure up? You see, any one of these things could be okay. Maybe, you should, maybe we should criticize our government at times and speak up and vote the other way and do things like that. But when it gets to the point where it manifests in your heart, you're scared. You're afraid. I know Chuck's been telling me Jesus is Lord, but look at what's happening in our world. What am I going to do? What do I do? How am I going to live? Doesn't mean you shouldn't prepare. You, shouldn't have money. you should have money in your savings, maybe a little extra food in your closet. But folks, you cannot pile away enough money And you can't hoard enough food to defeat Satan. Do you hear what I said? Now that deserves an amen. You can't. If he comes after you, there's no amount of food and no amount of money that is going to protect you. Only one thing is going to protect you. Ultimately and at the end of the day, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Plus Nothing. Nothing. Because everything can be taken away from us in a second, in a split second. And this is why you need to to hear what preachers are saying. It's not just me. You can listen to almost every one of the pastors in our presbytery. They're all begging their congregations to wake up, look around you. And trust your Savior, trust your King. How in the world do you defeat these idols? Here's another great Puritan, Thomas Chalmers. The love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but a state of enmity. So irreconcilable. They cannot dwell together in the same bosom. You shall have no other gods before me, not even in my presence. I don't want to see them. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to be afraid about politics anymore. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm not going to... You can't do that. You have to fill your heart 
with the realities of what the Bible said, what God's Word says about you and your life and your value. This is why Dane Ortland's book is so amazing because he's, he tells us what God really and truly thinks of us and why He cares for us and why He gives you a church and community groups and pastors and elders and deacons and women's council members so that we can care for one another and help one another when, when the world comes crashing in and the idols have taken root, who's going to help you? How will you disassociate yourself from them? The expulsive power of a new affection, falling in love with your Savior and all the means of His grace to you. How do you do that? How do you develop an affection? Well, this is how I think the story of Ahab and his idolatry and his syncretism points us in the right direction. When Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' uh, protege, when Joshua, the son of Nun, took the nation of Israel into the promised land, what was the first city they came to and had to conquer? First city. Jericho. First city they came to. Jericho was a massive city with thick walls and they made a deal with a prostitute, this gal named Rahab, and she got saved. She was a Canaanite. She got saved. Actually became a, uh, one of the ancestral line of our Savior Jesus. Uh, this woman, Jeze- or uh, Rahab. And so in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua put a curse on the city of Jericho as a memorial. In other words, he wanted the city of Jericho to remain broken down rubble as a memorial to the victory of the people of Israel in conquering the land. So he said, anybody that builds Jericho, there's going to be a a curse. And here, centuries later, comes Ahab. And during Ahab's time, one of the prominent men in Ahab's world, a man named Heel, says, I'm going to rebuild Jericho. It's a shame that it's been laying there all these years in rubble, so I'm going to rebuild it. Look at this. This will stun you. In verse 34, In Ahab's day, Heel of Bethel built Jericho and he laid the foundation, look, at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. He set up the gates, that means he finished it, at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. It cost Heel two of his children, cost him his firstborn to lay the foundation, cost him his youngest to put up the gates. Now scholars have wondered and pondered over this. They said, well, maybe it means that the, child, that the children died, you know, and it's just showing us the span of time that Heel uh, built this city from the firstborn to the last, and his firstborn, the curse affected him, and he died, and the last one, the curse was on him too, and he died, but it cost Heel, he didn't stop building. And that's very possible. Another possibility is that Heel took his son, his firstborn, and sacrificed him on the altar of Molech or one of the other gods 
in order to prosper his rebuilding of Jericho. And then he took his lastborn, his youngest, and sacrificed him at the cost of that son so that he could finish the city. That would not have been unusual in those days. Heel brought the curse down because he rebuilt Jericho, a city that was under God's curse. He was saying to God and to the world, I'm going to reverse the exodus. I'm going to re-Canaanize Canaan. We've, you destroyed Jericho, Joshua, and that was all fine and dandy, but now we're going to rebuild this cursed city, and I will rebuild it even if it costs me my firstborn son, even if it costs me my youngest son, I will rebuild this cursed city. What do you think it costs? What do you think as a Christian, what do you think it costs to rebuild Jericho for God? A world, a city, a population, a humanity that was under a curse. Never to be allowed back into the garden, never to be able to rebuild that habitation. What was it going to cost? You all know the answer already. The parallels are too many. The world that we live in is a Jericho. It is a place under a curse. And God in His compassion sent His only Son to die on the cross so that he could rebuild this cursed city and turn it into a new Jerusalem, a new habitation. And when you see that, when you come to this text and you look at it and you go, is that possible? Could he possibly love me and my city and my church and my community and humanity? Is it possible that he could love us this way? And from the scriptures just leaping out at us and saying, yes, He loves you this way. That's the expulsive power of a new affection that will fill up your heart to where you can start to push out against the idols that want to find root there. It'll push it out because only the love of this God who loved and gave himself for us and now lives inside you can push this stuff out. So whether I live, the Apostle Paul said, whether I live or I die, takes the extremes of human existence, living and dying, and he said, no matter what happens to me, I belong to Jesus Christ. Will you trust him? I sure hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we love you dearly, but we know that our love falls short. There's so many things that are constantly competing, constantly pressing in around us. And some of them are good things and we don't see any damage in perhaps doing them, but very often they take a place in our heart that we're, we cannot do without them. And we ask that you would please help us to have the courage, Father, to fill our hearts with your love, with your grace, with your mercy, to the point that it expels every other affection 
We pray you'll do this through your spirit in Christ's name. Amen.